Hello and welcome to the McKinsey Africa podcast with me, Kiri Naidu. The McKinsey Africa podcast brings you conversations with leading experts and shares actionable insights addressing challenges and opportunities facing managers and leaders working on the continent. This is one of our featured podcasts in a series focusing on Africa's financial technology or fintech industry. For those joining for the first time and those new to the industry, we're using the term fintech here as a catch-all for any technology that's delivering financial services in new and innovative ways, often through automation. The typical advantage of fintech over traditional financial services is that it offers greater access and nimbleness, which is what consumers and business owners expect and increasingly need to get by in the modern world. Of course, it also holds significant potential for improving financial inclusion, which in Africa, which has high rates of unbanked population, is vital. In these interviews, we are speaking to some of Africa's leading proponents of fintech on the continent on what it takes or will take to build the sector on the continent. I'm delighted to welcome Dare Okoju, founder and CEO of MFS Africa, the largest mobile money platform on the continent. Connected to over 400 million mobile wallets and over 200 million bank wallets across 35 countries in Africa, MFS Africa was named one of the most innovative companies by business magazine Fast Company in 2017. Before launching startup MFS Africa in 2009, Dare worked at the MTN Group, where he developed their mobile payment strategy and led implementation across MTN operations in 21 countries across Africa and the Middle East. He started his career in management consulting with PricewaterhouseCoopers in Paris and holds an MSc in Telecom Engineering from ENST Paris and an MBA from INSEAD. Also joining us in the studio today is one of McKinsey's leading authorities in fintech, Mayoa Kyoro, a partner in the Lagos office. She leads the financial services practice with a focus on banking, fintech and payments and has over 10 years of experience working in private, public and social sector institutions across Africa. She also leads McKinsey's work with startup companies, especially fintech concerns on the continent, and is a thought leader on innovation in this space. Dare and Maiwa, thank you for being here and welcome to the McKinsey Africa podcast. Dare, maybe start off by telling us a bit more about MFS Africa. MFS Africa started really as a result of my own experience as, as migrant. As you know, when you're a migrant, there are two constants in your life. You know, you call home and you send money home. And since 94, when I left Benin to now, the calling home got so much better. You know, we started by writing in letters when we supposed to call, you know, set appointment to call. Uh, we went from pay phone to the scratch card that we have to uh, buy specifically for the destination you're calling, all the way to now absolutely take for granted that we can click on a button and talk. And we don't even know where the people are, you know. Someone gives you a number, it could be Burundi or Bulgaria or Bangladesh. Uh, you just dial the number and take it for granted that it will work. And it does work, which is the magic part of it. Uh, but you can't do that for money. If I say just give you a number, you can't take it for granted that you'll be able to transact with this person. MFS Africa really exists to, to solve that problem, to make the world take for granted that if you can call, you should be able to pay. And the way we approach the problem is really to 
uh, you know, through the same method, uh, telecoms have approached the problem, which is network of networks. So the idea of connecting different payment schemes uh, together, initially starting in Africa, to make sure that from any person who is regular user of a given payment scheme anywhere in Africa, say Guinea Conakry, we can find a path to another user on a completely different payment scheme in Zambia, for instance, to be able to exchange value. That's really the, the, the approach we're taking, uh, which is not dissimilar to the way that someone in Guinea Conakry will be able to call someone in Zambia, not because the, there is just one network that covers both of them, or not because there's direct link between those networks, but because we have been able in telecommunication to stitch network together in a way that there's always a path. So that's the essence of MFS Africa, and we talk about making borders matter less. It comes from the, this experience of, of being migrant, and I'm sure many of your listeners have similar experience. Absolutely, uh, Dari. Um, MFS has become one of the largest digital payments hub, you spoke to it about being a, a connector of networks to other networks within the sort of the, the mobile money, cross-border pay, you know, the broader payments uh, uh, sector, and you, you make it look very, very easy. What are your thoughts on building and scaling a, a fintech on the continent? We've seen an explosion of activity in this space, and a lot of the questions that players in the ecosystem are asking and around is how do you take the innovations that we've seen to scale? Um, it'd be great to get some of your thoughts around that. No, absolutely. Uh, it, it's certainly not easy. I'm sorry for making it sound like it is. It's not, but usually I think it gets easier if you stand in purpose. Uh, I think part of, part of the difficulty is not being sure of what the North Star is. And, and if you're not sure about the North Star, obviously, the wings and the, the hurdles as well will take you off course, if you had a course anyway. So in our case, it's easier because we have our eyes set on this direction of making borders matter less. And, you know, sometimes people ask me, when do we know our work is done, including MFS Africa employees? And I literally have my mom's number that I wrote down and my mom still lives in Benin. And I say, well, do you believe you can call this number? And usually the answer is yes. Do you believe you can pay this number? And usually they hesitated more. And I say, well, our job will be done when you can not hesitate to this question. You will be as convinced that you can pay as you are today about calling. So with that clarity of purpose, it gets a little bit easier. Having said that, uh, you know, I think there's part of building a venture on Africa now, which is not the part of it which is similar, whether you're building in fintech, in agritech, in health tech, uh, as long as it's tech, let me be very specific. And that has to do with the fact that you have to build really strong teams and you have to continue scaling your team. And that tends to be one of the most difficult things uh, when you try, you need now to go after outside of personal network for recruitment. Uh, the more you know, ventures we have, the more funding we get, the more difficult that gets because the pool is actually small and, and we're all fighting for, for the same resources. When you are in fintech, there is an added uh, difficulty which is around regulation, of course. And it's the, and especially if you're trying to do this across market, then the difficulty compounds. Uh, how we go about that as MFS Africa is to be very deliberate about the talent part of things and betting that, you know, if we have the right people, they will find the right answers. 
and they will find the right questions as well. And we focus a lot of our energy on just attracting and retaining the right people. Then obviously you need the funding to be able to do that, and then and then you do need to manage the stakeholders across. Uh, you know, across your your ecosystem, I would say, and and that also it's a moving target sometimes because of the complexity of the ecosystem, because of the singularity of some countries. But by and large, our approach has been like, look, if we get the right people, if we fill the place with the right people, we will get there eventually. In your business, what does a truly pan African footprint look like? How do you think you've achieved sort of true Pan-Africanism in finance? And if so, you know, how have you been able to, to achieve it? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. What, what the true Pan-African footprint looks like? For us, it's simple. It's all countries in Africa. Because again, there are some unnatural things going on across some borders in Africa. And when you look at it from a, from a macro perspective, you miss it. Uh, you know, already being from Benin and with a Yoruba name, you can guess that I'm very familiar with the, the trade between Benin and Nigeria. Most people miss it in the macro trade, but that is actually makes Benin a net sender to Nigeria when you look at flows of trade. But you will have, at the macro level, you say, well, Nigeria is the bigger country, so people from Benin will immigrate to Nigeria and then send money back to Benin. That's kind of the natural construct that we think. But that's not true in reality. In reality is people from Benin who originally ha- you know, came from Nigeria, kept ties with the tribe, if you want to call it, and continue to trade with that. So they buy a lot, and Nigerian manufacturing base being stronger than the one in Benin, they buy more from Nigeria, and they come back and sell it in Benin. And similar things are at play between Gambia and Senegal, you know, between Malawi and the rest of the port countries on the, on the east, Tanzania and so on. So for us, we don't see the borders. And that's why we talk about making borders matterless. So we see one Africa, not only from the, the Pan-Africanism you know, of our fathers and so on, but from the reality that people are trading with each other and people are moving. This is compounded by the fact that if you take someone from Kampala today or someone from Accra or someone from Lusaka or from, from Lagos, you just look at the way they dress, the way they talk, the music they listen to, the food they eat, the differences are getting smaller and smaller. So there is this convergence of people, there is this unity of people and this uh, oneness that is at play. And for us, a truly Pan-African footprint cannot leave any country outside. We can argue a little bit if Northern Africa is the same. So, and, and there are difference, cultural differences, but that is only true if you compare it directly Morocco to South Africa. But if you're comparing Morocco to Mauritania, it's a gradient, right? And if you're comparing Mauritania into Senegal, it's a gradient. So that's why I'm a strong believer that it has to be the whole of Africa. And that's, that's our goal. It's to wire up the whole continent, to make it possible for money to move, in, to move from, you know, Vinduk to Cairo and money to move from Antananarivo to, to Nouachot. It should be possible. Today, it is possible to call these countries. Now, how do you go about that? It's, you know, it's like eating an elephant piece by piece, right? So we, we, have to, we, we have to be patient about that mission and we have to keep building in that direction. It does get easier because network effect kicks in because once you know, we have connected Kenya, Uganda, Rwanda, and Tanzania, it becomes a no-brainer to add Burundi to it, for instance. And it makes sense to add DRC to it. So there is a, a, a network 
public affairs that kicks in at some point. But as far as we are concerned as MFS Africa, the goal is to cover the whole continent. Absolutely. I, as you were speaking, I was uh, remembering a situation that happened to me two years ago now, just yet, yeah, probably two years ago. I had gone to make my hair and to get my hair braided and I was in Kenya and I do not carry cash around with me. And the way for me to make that payment was that I had to send USD to a friend um, and then that person sent the the uh, shillings, the Kenyan, Kenyan shillings, shillings. Yeah. to, to the, the lady who had braided my hair. And for me, it is belies belief that I cannot directly take Naira, which, you know, is what I earn in, in Nigeria and directly make a payment to somebody in, in Kenya. So can I ask you a little bit, what is stopping this vision of sort of making payments as easy as making a phone call? What are maybe one of the one or two big um, uh, barriers that are sort of stopping or or making my payments experience, for example, so painful? Yeah, I'm sorry about that. It means we have not finished our work, right? That, That shows that, you know, we're still failing you and many people across the continent. The good news, though, is if you were coming from Uganda, you would have been able to make that payment directly from whether you were using MTN or Airtel directly into an MPS account. That's something that's happening today seamlessly through the works of MFS Africa and our partners. Uh, and most people don't even think about it anymore. And we have received testimonial during COVID time that it was actually critical. People who found themselves stranded in a different countries, but having to support uh, you know, family or respond to emergency in a different countries, in East Africa in particular, have been able to use this seamless ability to send money from you know, your Uganda phone to a Kenyan phone or a Tanzanian phone and Rwanda phone. Why it's not possible between Nigeria and Kenya right now, I would say number one is regulation. The visible sign of it is, well, there is no clear approval and the process of getting that approval is quite cumbersome. Uh, to move money between those two currencies without going through the dollars. But the longer answer is the collective lack of trust, I would say, between our governments and the central banks. Like, you know, how we will do this without going through the dollars? Well, the central bank of Kenya and the central bank of of Nigeria will have to be comfortable holding each other's currency. So how much, and if you, uh, central bank of Kenya, uh, and to hold the Naira, you have to trust the direction, the governance of Nigeria. I'm not going to comment on whether they should trust that or not, but the truth is it's not happening, right? And vice versa. So we, we package this in long stories and laws and so on, but for me, that's the cruise of the matter. Our government or our leadership is not just government. When I say government, it's, that's the executive. But I'm putting in there also the regulation and, and, and the, 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 the legislative, all of that. That To which extent do we trust each other, actually, beside you know, the, the, the conferences, the AU summits, and, and the nice pictures and the declaration that goes out there, to which extent will the central bank of Ghana trust the central bank of Burundi to hold Burundi friends. And because that trust is not there, well, each of us revert to some sort of things that we trust, usually is the dollars, the euro, the pound, and so on, which then means a lot of our transaction and our, our payment have to be 
settled through those things. Now, it doesn't have to be like that. And I think there are steps that are being made, you know, by many people, including people like SMFS Africa. There is the initiative of PAPS with AfriXM Bank and few other uh, believers in the ecosystem that we can actually bridge this using a combination of technology processes, financing for sure, to force this to, to happen. And the way we do it in East Africa is an example of how it can be done, that actually it can happen. Uh, but we have to also be patient. You know, it, it, people trade with their neighbors again. So in East Africa, there is a little bit more comfort uh, to, to, to trade with, with East African countries, so moving money between the East African countries. So be simple. You can see something similar with the Francophone countries in, in, in West Africa, but that's a bit easier because it's the same currency. But here's the real irony is that, you know, the CFA on the West, you know, the CFA Dakar, as we call it, and the XCF, the CFA uh, in Cameroon, you know, the Yaoundé one, cannot also be crossed each other. Now, talking about not trusting, I mean, let me, let me just rest my case there. <laughs> Thanks, Zari. I think a lot of the time when we talk about the trust factor, we talk, we talk about trust of the consumers in the uh, formal financial system. I think this is a new dimension of thinking about uh, trust and the place that it plays in helping us get a sort of fully seamless uh, digital payment system across, across the continent. I'm going to switch gears a little bit and sort of focus a little bit on sort of fundraising and, and valuation. Um, there's been a lot of noise. Uh, actually, maybe not noise is the right word, but there's been a lot of um, uh, activity and almost an explosion around fundraising in the African tech ecosystem. I think there was a, 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 an article that said in the first 70 days or first however many days of the year 2022, we'd already raised a, a billion dollars. Um, it'll be great to get your perspectives on how you think about fundraising, you know, how should people evaluate companies on the continent and maybe one or two things on what an investor should be thinking about as they're assessing uh, potential assets on the continent. Yeah, it's, it's been absolutely great to watch, you know, the, the growth in, in fundraising across the continent and what it means for more teams to be able to build more. Uh, so I'm, I'm celebrating that and, and uh, I think it's great. We just have to remember sometimes that we are coming from a low base, so we shouldn't stop here. That, you know, it, 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 yes, there is, there's a lot to celebrate. You know, MFS Africa itself, the, the, here's a funny story. We set out to raise our B round in 2016 and our target was 10 million. Can you imagine? And we celebrated because we're oversubscribed at 23 million. It just now we see seed round of more than 23 million. So, so I think there is a lot of progress has happened and we can only rejoice. Uh, yeah, but my, my uh, thing will be not to stop here, not to kind of define some sort of, you know, African best. We should try our, our best to remove the Africa part. We have to continue to compete at global level. And while we celebrated a lot of money coming into Africa last year, I think overall, someone said it was the same as Philadelphia, you know, in the U.S. So just to keep things in perspective. Um, so we have to continue. We, we have to continue. What does it mean for, for the ecosystem at large? I think we will be able to produce or multiply more 
good people and good people, good startup people. And, and, and we, we talked about talent earlier. The problem we have, company like MFS Africa, a company that are at this stage, is our pool, you know, when you're looking for a chief commercial officer, now that can take a company from, you know, where we are now to 10 times our revenue, the pool is very small or non-existent. You have to go to corporate uh, or you have to go outside of Africa. What all this fundraising means is that we're going to get more people who will have done now maybe three times, you know, from $10,000 in revenue to a million dollars. And we, we start building more there. We start building in, in product managers and so on and so forth. So that, that's good and that's going to be a net positive. And five years from now, we'll be able to build more uh, as a result of what has happened or what is happening now. Your question about investors, I don't know much more outside of tech, to be honest. So if you are investing in, in a factory, in, you know, in manufacturing, please don't take my advice. If you are, but tech is a little bit different and tech in general and then fintech in particular. Tech in general has this thing that there's no limit really. You know, the, it's recombination. At the end, it's line of codes. And the possibilities are in the fact that you can recombine those line of codes so many times in so many ways that teams that started building something may actually end up with something completely different and that's okay or that should be okay and i think investors should be prepared to that they're probably too much still in the system of the impact aspect and hardly defined around some metrics that look relevant today but as long as we're investing in startup we're investing in venture we should be prepared for things to evolve and there should be room for things to evolve. So that would be my, my word for, for investors that the earlier you invest in, the more open you have to be about what the outcome can be. And as long as you, you, you are more betting on the team than you are betting on, on anything else. Uh, then there is obviously the second thing around, you know, what, what usually makes deals take so long is due diligence and the comfort that investor needs to get around the information that they're seeing, the story and the ability to validate those information and some of the facts uh, practically. And we find in many ways that that can be very costly and can be time consuming if you absolutely need to get to certainty. And it gets compounded when people are operating in multiple market or non-obvious market, as I call it. And I think that's again where I believe investors on, on early stage on the continent have to show more courage. Uh, and be okay a little bit early stage with more asymmetry and blind spot and be okay to correct them as we go along. Last thing will be that I still believe local investor will be better investor in the long run. So it's still much easier for someone in Morovia to invest in businesses in Liberia. It's so much harder for you, you know, even from Johannesburg to invest in a business in Liberia, let alone from Singapore or from San Francisco. So. The long play here has to be that, you know, we have to have local investor, local fund. Uh, we're, seeing a, we're seeing a lot of that in Nigeria in particular. Uh, you know, I think the, the Lagos scene where uh, founders are investing themselves and people from corporate are investing is an example of, you know, many other ecosystems need to take that. At the end, especially in the early stage, I think in the long run, local investor will be better investors. and need to take that first risk and we need to see more and more of that happening uh, so is that some skill that needs to be transferred from investors that we are seeing today we are not on the african continent maybe 
but it's also an, a message to all the founders, all, all the people, the operators in the ecosystem now to also start writing checks. We are better investor than any investor coming outside of Africa. I'm smiling um, and I know that the, the audience is not going to hear this because I completely agree um, with, the, with the take about it's, us, it's up to us Africans to build what we want. And we are probably better assessors of risk, better assessors of you know, market potential, better, assess, you know, better contributors almost. On, in fact, when you think about growth as well. Um, so we definitely need to see more, um, more, more sort of hubs that look like Lagos um, and so on and so forth. Darren, I'm going to ask you a question because we've, we've alluded to it and we've talked about it um, over the course of this discussion, which is this people and talent. You know, you, you've mentioned it in so many different ways. And every time you mention it, I actually am smiling because, you know, you know, as part of my day job, I serve uh, so what, what you would term as the incumbent financial services institutions. But this is a problem that cuts across the entire ecosystem. So banks telcos, fintechs, everybody is talking about the, the war for talent. Um, and then I don't know if COVID helped because you can then get sort of talent outside of the continent or didn't help because you now have um, talent on the continent working for companies that are not in the continent. So how do you think about this talent question, you know, for the ecosystem, do we have enough talent? How do we build uh, a critical mass? Um, because at the end of the day, Africa is made up of young people primarily under the age of 30. How do we harness our demographic dividend to really help um, boost our technology ecosystem? You know, this is, I can tell you, this keeps me awake all the time, the, the, the talent question. And there was something that indeed happened in, in, in COVID, which made... Some of the market global, especially in tech, especially software developers, engineers, um, who can just do their work from anywhere now. And, and that, that's great uh, because it allows us to attract global talent into Africa. And I think places like Cape Town, Nairobi, Dakar to some extent, uh, nice places will benefit from that. And, and they will be able to, we might see something from those ecosystems uh, soon because of that, because the ability to just attract global talent. But it also works the other way, which is, is expose African talent to global, global opportunities. And in the, in the tech software development in particular, there is already a clear price arbitrage. Like it's obvious. Like you know, I was in Boston the other day. Kid out of MIT, zero experience, two hundred thousand dollars, like first job. Senior engineer in Lagos, you know, like build real stuff, sixty thousand dollars. So it's just a matter of time. You know, information is global. It will, the gap will have to close. Either you get paid more in Lagos. Oh, the Lagos guy is going to work for the guys who are hiring uh, the kids out of MIT. It, it's that simple. So now we can argue about it. We can look at it in you know in matter of weeks, months. But the trend is there, so we might as well get on with the program. So and I, I that is actually something to be celebrated. And I know some of the founders and sometimes me included, like, gee, how are we going to be able to pay for this? Well, we have to raise more money or sell more. That's the only way because you cannot stop the progress of people, right? So. 
you know, so, so that for me are the two main things that the COVID really changed. Like the ability for some places in Africa to, to attract global talent and therefore become global ecosystems and the possibility for talent across the continent to, to bridge the, the pay gap with, with their global peers. But beyond talent, one thing is to get the talent through the door with the attractive offer. The another thing is to keep the talent in, in the company. And as good as people are, they, they're not really productive until they are able to absorb. In, my, in MFS Africa, we talk about the rule of the 90%. And 90% is that you understand 90% of what's going on around you. You know, the context of the company, the mission of the company, how people behave around here, the culture of the company. And once people get there, and you cannot keep them there, you're also losing a lot. So, and that's not money. That I'm pretty sure. It's not how much you're paying them. You know, paying them, the, the salary will get them through the door. But, and, and if you see, if you're not paying well, well, you're not able to keep them. But assuming you're correct for, for salary disparities, there's still a big element of how do you actually keep people in, you know, motivated, and how okay it is also to let people go when they, they're, not, they're no longer at the right place. And I think we're still learning around that. And our cultures, we have a strong culture of loyalty across the continent. And I can only speak for MFS Africa that you know, we have more than 30 different nationalities in, in, in the company. And, and, all, and then when you start something together like this and you grow through it, there's this strong sense of someone leaving is almost like a betrayal. And if you were to terminate someone is some sort of, you know, there's a lot of trauma into that. And we have to get better at doing that. We have to get better at, at really retaining people. Um, because for sure, where before the competition was just between few companies and versus someone want to do startup versus uh, uh, versus corporate, now there's so much option, and it's you know the table has literally been turned for skilled workers, and we must also remember that this is a relatively small group. If you look at Lagos overall, I know there's a lot of noise on Twitter but it's still a small group, right? So, and that is not changing the truth about unemployment in Lagos or in Nigeria, and it's not changing about unemployment in Johannesburg and in, and in Nairobi and so on, and we must keep that in mind. But for skilled workers, I think the, the war for talent is real and is to their benefit. Their responsibility, especially the African ones, is to also make sure that whatever they're doing, they're adding value and that they're building and they are not being selfish about the life they're living, that they're actually putting that skill to at the service of, you know, something worthy. But for employers like us, like, you know, MFS Africa, and whether, you know, you are startup earlier stage or, or later stage, you just have to understand that it is now a market and that blind allegiance or that situation that allows us to have this amazing talent, but at a really, really low price, it's over we're going to have to adjust. Literally, this was a conversation I had with one of my clients this afternoon. So it's, it's, quite, um, it's quite interesting that, you know, despite sort of two perspectives or two, two ways of looking at the problem, you're coming to the same sort of answer. So, so I think that this is something that we definitely have to keep our eyes on, you know, over the next uh, couple of years. Dara, the last question I'm going to ask you is, I would love for you to cast your mind into the future. And think about, you know, what does the future for, for financial services in Africa look like from the perspective of um, now we have a lot of players in the system. I, I bucket them into the traditional incumbents who are the banks. You also then have the telco players 
And then you're increasingly having a lot of the disruptors uh, and the fintechs in the space. You know, in your mind, is it a winner takes all situation where one of those players will win? Is it a room for everybody to play given the magnitude of the problem that we have. What kind of interaction and what kind of future do you envisage for for African financial services, you know, over the the next couple of years? It's it's a question that I ask myself often. Maybe I will nuance a little bit the groups that you put and then I will put another dimension the way we can look at it. So the telcos, it's unclear if we should still look at them as telco or not. You know, all of them most of them, are, I should say, are on this journey to separate the fintech arm from, from the telco. That has some profound implications. Like, what is competition then? You know, does it mean that other fintechs have the same access to the telco infrastructure than Airtel money will have on the Airtel? Uh, and you should argue that. We, we saw that in the unbundling of telecommunication, the local loop, right? When the incumbents separate these things, then there is an element of... So this could actually be an opportunity for the whole industry, that if the fintech is separated from the from the telco, uh, does the telco infrastructure become available to all the players, which could be interesting. So that's why I will not look at them as telco, but I will nuance the, the fintech element of the telco, and then I will throw in what does that mean for all the players with telco infrastructure. Then we have to think about are we talking about consumer financial services or are we talking about businesses? And I think that distinction is also very different. Is it, I mean, the answer to that question has different implications. I will argue that the, the consumer part might be really hard for the banks as we know them to keep. Uh, something radical will have to change. And obviously, when I'm saying banks, I'm generalizing. You know, we might find situations in some countries where this does not play out. But by and large, I think the ability to make your customer love you, which is something that you need in the consumer business, it's, it's going to be difficult for the banks as we know them today to achieve that. And that's really what it's about in the consumer business. Your consumer, your customer have to love you. It doesn't matter what you do, what you provide. If they don't love you, they're going to move. And, and I just feel like the other groups that you mentioned are approaching it more from that point of view that they have more chances to succeed and the banks have for so long really treat their customers like constituents that the mentality, even the people who work in the bank, it will take such a shift and in that shift, banks could lose themselves that I'm wondering if it's even worth risking that. So for many banks, I would say the consumer part of the business is at risk for sure. Uh, the business side is difficult, is different. I do think that, you know, and many people are seeing, including all these fintechs still need a bank partner. So I do think that there is the opportunity in the business segment is actually real if the banks can look at it the right way that, you know, every business needs a bank. And most of the attack that we're seeing on banks is happening on the consumer side. Now we start seeing it on the SME side, but I would argue that there, the, the jury is still very much out that, you know, the banks still have most of the resources, the assets, starting with the licenses that are required to do this. That in the, in the medium term, 
and probably in the long term, I will still bet on the banks. You know, through they need some help for sure. They need different type of people. They need mentality shift that needs to you know real, not lip service that you know you come to conferences and you talk nice words. Like real stuff needs to change. And if that happens, I, I still think from a pure asset and resources point of view, they still have a leg up. So when I look into the future, I see a consumer market that is actually way more fragmented uh, than, than we think. Uh, I'm not convinced that the person who makes consumer loves or the company that consumer loves in Liberia is the same that they love in Central Africa Republic. I'm not convinced about that. It's possible, but I'm not convinced. So as a result, we will see a whole lot more uh, fragmentation on the consumer financial services. I think champions will be local. But on the business side, I think there's a real Pan-African opportunity. And, and I think despite what it looks like right now, I think the banks still have a leg up. Thank you so much, Dari and Maya, for sharing your experiences and insights. And thanks to you, our listeners. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of our McKinsey Africa podcast series. Look out for the next podcast in this series on Africa's fintech industry. We'll be bringing you perspectives from other fintech leaders on the investment opportunities and challenges, how fintechs are thinking about fundraising, and what's in store on the traditional banking front when it comes to Africa's fintech revolution. You won't want to miss it. If you'd like to learn more about this topic or view some of the recent reports, we encourage you to visit our insights page on mckinsey.com forward slash ZA. We also encourage you to follow McKinsey Africa on LinkedIn and on Twitter by searching our handle at McKinsey Africa. Thanks again for listening and we hope you can join us again soon. (music) 